0: This morning we continue our study of Matthew 18, and we're going to see the incredible importance that our Lord places on influence. We're in this section dealing with relationships between one another, and we saw last week that greatness in the Christian life requires great interactions with others, and that begins with humility. The greatest Christian is the lowest one, and he or she is not looking for status. They're not seeking greatness, and they recognize themselves as having nothing before God. They've been brought low by God's saving grace, and that lowliness affects all of their interactions with others. And from this place of humility, the great one serves others. In our Lord's estimation, a great one in his kingdom is one who has this humility. They've become as a child. So humility is the foundation for everything that we're going to see in this section in Matthew 18. And it starts with accepting the lowly place of the child. And now from this humble foundation, our Lord is going to teach us about our influence on others. If we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven in the sense of of glorifying God and laying up treasure in heaven in that good sense of greatness that our Lord taught us in verse 4 of chapter 18, then we must have a positive God-word and godly influence on others. And on the other side of that, we must avoid any kind of sinful or negative influence on others. Do you know that our heavenly reward will be based on how we impact others in this life. We impact one another now in in the present time, but the ripples of our influence are going to echo into eternity. And this reality of eternal impact on others is both wonderful and it's frightful. What an amazing realization that we can be used of God to transform someone for eternity. See, people will one day stand before God clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ because of my influence on them, because of your influence on them. I know even in this very place, the Lord has used my preaching to bring some of you to salvation. And He has used your support of this church to provide for our families so that the Word of God goes forth from this pulpit. There's a, an eternal impact that happens. And we could say the same thing about spiritual growth as well. People have put off sin and grown to be more like Christ because of the influence of our church, because of our collective influence, because we work together in this ministry. And you yourselves have grown in the faith. And you've grown in your knowledge, and you've grown in becoming, like our perfect example, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens not only as a church, but also individually. You see, whether we like it or not, our lives influence everyone around us. And there's no neutral in this influence. Our individual influence goes in one of two ways. We either influence people to good, to godliness, to holiness. We influence people for bad, and we encourage them in sin or in selfishness or in idolatry or worldliness and so forth. We we influence people in one of those two ways. And this is where the thought of how we influence people becomes frightful. Because we can have a negative influence on others. We can have a negative effect on others and lead them into sin, which will have a negative consequence on their lives, not only in their lives now, but even in their eternal state. Just think about something as simple as complaining. Just complaining. You know, all of us have done it at some time, All of us have done it at one time or another. We've complained. You know, we didn't like this thing or we didn't like that thing. There's a, a thousand things we can complain about. <clears throat> and sometimes we even feel right to complain. If we're just being honest, we feel right about it. We we deserve to complain if we want to think about it that way. We we it, We justify it. We blame others even. I'm complaining because so-and-so did such-and-such. But ultimately, all complaining is against God. When we grumble, we grumble against what God has allowed in our lives for our good and for His glory. And when we verbalize a complaint to another person, it tempts them to pick up that complaint and carry it for themselves. You know, that's how it must have went with Israel. You think about Israel in the wilderness. One unthankful person. One unthankful person in the wilderness probably started it all with a sigh Oh that we had meat to eat in this wilderness. And then another one comes along. Remember the melons? You guys know what I'm talking about? Remember the melons that we enjoyed in Egypt? And on and on, and, and it, it built until it became a full on rebellion against God. Numbers eleven four to six says, Now among the rabble sorry, now uh, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. God gave them manna in the wilderness, fed them from the, the, the rain of the sky or however this stuff magically appeared, this beautiful manna that he gave them in the wilderness, and, and they complained about it. And that generation died in the wilderness and they did not enter into the promised land. Now there's a lot that we could say about this. Moses was a good influence, but it wasn't enough. And we see how dependent we are on God then in that we need God and Christ to work through us and work in others if we're going to have any effect at all, if we're going to be any kind of an influence. But everything we do, whether good... (coughs) Everything we do, whether good or bad, influences others eternally. And also, and this is important, the things we fail to do influence others as well. The things that we fail to do, that also influences others. And our failure to influence others positively, to do positive good, that is a negative influence on others itself. Now in our text today, we're going to see the incredible importance of influence. And that's what I called this message, the incredible importance of influence as we study this, I, I want you to think about it from two sides. Ask yourself, who am I influencing, and is it for good? Okay, Who am I influencing, and, and is it for good? But then also ask yourself the other way, who's influencing me? Who's influencing me, and are they influencing me towards godliness and obedience in my Christian life, or is it taking me in the opposite direction? So as we think about this, I want you to ask yourselves those two sides. You know, I remember in seminary, Steve Lawson said in the early uh, days of seminary, he told the the group of us incoming students that we should find the most Christ-like brother that we can and stick to that person like glue and grow together with that person. I think very good advice. We need to be careful about who's influencing us. Let's read our text again. We're in Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, let's start at verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Well, we're going to focus on verses five to nine today. Verse five is a hinge verse that transitions between the childlike humility that makes one great in the kingdom to the way that we receive one such little one. From last week, you remember that the child in that day had no status and they were by default the lowest in society. And now we have this low person, a disciple of Christ, and we ask ourselves, how do we receive them? Verse 10 also is a transition. It transitions into verses 11 to 14, and it shows us the Father's concern for the disciples. No matter how low we are as disciples of Christ, we are still God's children, or in verses 11 to 14, we are sheep of His flock. Now, we'll look at verses 10 to 14 next week, but I I want you to see that on either side of our text, we have one such child, in verse 5, And one of these little ones in verse 10. These little ones are to be received. They're not to be despised. These little ones are simply disciples of Christ. They are believers. They are Christians. And this is about how we interact with one another. This is about how we interact with other disciples of Jesus Christ. Or to say it again, this is about our influence or about our example on others. And so first of all, number one in our outline, we're going to see the blessing of receiving a little one in Jesus' name. The blessing of receiving a little one in Jesus' name. Verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now there's a change of perspective here. Jesus had just told the 12 that they must become like children. They must humble themselves like this child. And now we think of another disciple who has humbled themselves, and they're a lowly disciple of Christ. How do we treat them? See, the tendency of the world is to welcome the great, welcome the mighty, welcome the strong, welcome the wise. But on the other side, they ignore or they despise the weak and the insignificant and the lowly. To receive a lowly one would make you seem lowly. You know, it's not going to bolster your reputation. It's not going to make you look good. And the disciples had just been arguing, you remember, about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus said they needed to turn. They needed to repent of that mindset. And so here's the opposite of pursuing greatness. Receive the lowly. Welcome them. Paul gave the same uh, advice as what I wrote in my notes, but the same counsel is probably, it's not just advice. This is God's word. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Again, that's Romans twelve sixteen. In our text, to receive means to be receptive to them, to welcome them them, to receive them as a guest. And this would include showing hospitality, but it seems to go beyond that. Jesus says that to receive such a one is to receive him. Jesus wants us to treat his people the way that we would treat him. Or maybe even better, the way that we treat the lowest Christian is the way that we treat Jesus Christ. Jesus is so intimately connected to his people that how we treat them is how we treat him. Now, doesn't that change the way that we view one another? In Jesus' mind, the way that you receive the lowest disciples is how you would receive him. Now, let's use some other words to cover this idea of receiving. See, the way that you speak about another Christian is the way that you speak about Jesus. The way that you think about another Christian is the way that you think about Jesus. The way that you respond to another Christian is the way that you respond to Jesus. And we could put other words in there. We could talk about helping. The way that you help another Christian is the way that you would help Jesus. The way that you serve another Christian is the way that you serve Jesus. Or we could flip it into the negative and say the way that you complain about another Christian is the way that you complain about Jesus. Or the way that you grumble about another Christian is the way that you grumble against Jesus. Now Jesus has spoken before about receiving others and receiving him. This is Matthew chapter 10. Why don't you uh, go ahead and turn there. Matthew 10, starting in verse 11, he says, Whatever town or village you enter, remember the disciples are going to go on this mission. Jesus says, Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you, same word there, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet. When you leave that house or town. And then if you skip down to verse 40, whoever, Jesus says to the disciples again, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so there's a chain of receiving happening here. To receive an apostle is to receive Jesus, and to receive Jesus is to receive the Father. Now, in our text, we go further down the line, and to receive the humblest, lowest Christian is to receive Jesus. Again, look at our text, verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This receiving is to be in Jesus' name. And, and the idea there is that it's, it's for his sake, or it's because of him, the name of Jesus is all of who he is and all of what he represents. So however we receive this one such child, it is to benefit them for Jesus' glory and for Jesus' cause. Right, do you see that? You see what's happening there? We're receiving this one for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we're not talking about general hospitality here. It's more specific. We are we are receiving them or serving them in Jesus' name. And when we do that, praise God, when we serve another Christian, the lowest, we serve Jesus. And that's why we called this he- this heading the blessing of receiving a little one in Jesus' name. Because we are blessed to be able to serve Jesus in our ministry to one another. And I think this should have a, a massive impact on the way that we think about everything that we do. This could, this could change everything that we do because when we serve another brother or sister in Christ, we are serving the Lord. See, imagine if you would, imagine what you would do if you knew that Jesus Christ was coming to Grace Bible Fellowship for one week. You got one week and, and he wanted some invites over for dinner. We would fall all over ourselves to be able to invite Jesus Christ to have the, the privilege of hosting him for dinner. Or imagine if he said, could, could one of you reach out to so and so? You know, they, they need some encouragement. Would you, would you do it for me? Or, or would you encourage me by encouraging them? Or imagine if he said, could you help so and so with that sin? Could you, could you help them put off that sin for me? Or if he asked you to minister to him in some way, (coughs) if he asked you to minister to him in some way that you were gifted for, you know, how would you set up the sanctuary in the morning? How would you set up whatever we call this room if you knew that you were doing it for Jesus Christ? Well, guess what? Whatever we do for the least, whatever you did this morning in setting up this thing for the least person here that's a disciple of Christ, you did it for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I help you as a believer, I help Jesus. And when you help me in Jesus' name, you help Jesus. What an amazing reality this is. What a blessing it is. And oh, how this could change our ministries forever if we really took this to heart. And what we see from all of this, then, is the, the really the amazing closeness between Jesus and his people. You see, Jesus cares for the least believer in the same way that he cares for himself. Because in a sense, there's no difference because we are his body. And so Jesus cares for the least believer as he cares for himself. And if you're in Christ, Jesus cares about you so much that he counts whatever is done for you in his name as having, as having been done for him. But this principle also works the other way in that when we do something against one of Jesus' little ones, we do it against Jesus. And that's what we see in verses 6 and 7, and that's number two in our outline. It's the warning. I called it the warning against mistreating a little one in verses 6 and 7. The warning Against mistreating a little. You know, all week long, I just, I don't have this problem. And so I, I just, I must, I must need to speak softer or something, but I just... I'm preaching, you know, so it's, it's, this is hard. So pray for me while I'm up here. The warning against mistreating a little one, verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Well, let's start here with one of these little ones. These again are disciples of Christ. In verse 2, they have turned and been converted. They've repented of trying to be great and have accepted their lowly status before God. They've become like children in that way. Verse 4, they have humbled themselves like a child. These little ones are disciples of Christ. We've talked much about what discipleship means and what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Now, if we doubt that these little ones refer to a disciple, verse 6 makes it clear where it adds, who believe in me. These little ones have believed in Christ, and they have been joined to him by faith. They are in him, and he is in them. And it's their union with Christ that makes causing them to sin so serious. To cause to sin is a Greek word that I've taught you before. I don't often teach you Greek words, but once in a while I, I think it's helpful. It's the word scandalizo. That's the verb or scandalon is the noun. And originally a scandalon referred to a trap with a bait and a stick holding the trap door up. See, sin is very much like a trap if you think about it. It, it promises something that's, that looks good. But it's not what it seems. You know, sin promises pleasure or, or some good thing, but it results in death. And you think about an animal then that's, that's going along a path and it sees or it smells the, the bait in this trap and it turns off the path and it takes the bait and now it's trapped and likely in the end it's going to end up dead. And so a scandalon was used not only of a trap, but now of, of something that that led one off this proper path. It was anything that would, would lead one astray, whether from a proper set of actions or from a proper set of beliefs. And so a scandal on takes you off the path of, of doing what is right or takes you off a path of believing sound doctrine. And so in that sense, it's a temptation to sin. Temptation to keep from doing what's right or temptation to depart from sound doctrine. Now, if I'm wise to the trap and I see the the whole thing and I I see the, the bait for what it is and I recognize that it's a trap meant to lead me astray, then I'll be insulted by that which tried to trap me. And so now a scandal on becomes an offense. And the word was used of an offense. Anything that would would lead us astray from the proper path of following Christ, that should be an offense to us. And of course, such a thing would be a sin. And so in our verse, we have someone, whoever, whoever, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, whoever they might be, they're doing something, whether it's purposeful or incidental it it really doesn't matter they're doing something to cause one of Jesus's disciples to go astray and they're leading them away from following Christ maybe not to the full extent of of denying Christ but in something they're taking them away from godly Christian practice or from sound doctrinal belief and so do you have a sense of this word scandal on This disciple of Christ, pictured as a little one, they're being led astray. And the person leading them astray might be setting a trap. They might actually intend to deceive this disciple, but it could also be that they are simply deceived themselves or that they don't know what right Christian practice and belief is or that they don't even care about proper Christian conduct or belief. And so there's lots of ways that this could apply. You could think of an unbeliever with a believing friend and the unbeliever leads his... (coughs) Excuse me. The unbeliever leads their friend into some sin. Maybe the unbeliever doesn't even think of the thing as a sin. That's one way that, that this could happen. Or we could think of two believers and one of them encourages the other not to do something that the word of God commands. Or they encourage them not to believe something that the word of God uh, uh, teaches. And that's what this verse is talking about. Or in the worst case, we're dealing with a wolf. A wolf in sheep's clothing, a, a false prophet or a false teacher. And one of, them, uh, one of their hearers is a true believer. And this false teacher leads that little one into heresy and into apostasy and away from Christ. And so from the least to the greatest, when whoever causes one of Jesus' disciples to disobey or disbelieve, to commit a sin of, of what we call a sin of commission, which is to break a command that God has given, or whether this is a sin of omission, to omit something that ought to be done, or even just to sin in the mind by failing to believe the truth of God's word, whoever causes one of these kinds of sin in a believer, they would be better off dead. They would be better off dead. And that's not my words. That's that's actually me softening what Jesus says in this passage. Now, I wouldn't dare say this if it wasn't right here on the lips of our Lord. According to Jesus, you would be better off if you died a horrible death, than to lead one, one of these little ones astray in any kind of way. Again, in verse 6, it would be better off for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, a millstone was a large stone for grinding wheat or some other kind of grain. And the word translated in the ESV, great, means pertaining to a donkey and so we're talking about a millstone that a donkey would turn one commentator said it would weigh hundreds of pounds another said it could have weighed several tons but whatever the weight we get the idea that it would it would pull a man or a woman to the bottom of the sea by the neck Now, there's two words for the sea here. One simply means the sea or the lake. It's the the very common word used for the Sea of Galilee, for example, which is really the Lake of Galilee. But the other word refers to the deep part of the sea, the part that's away from shore. We might call it the open sea. Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say what will happen to the person who leads this one of his little ones astray, he says that this millstone turned by a donkey would be better tied around the neck and cast that person into the sea. Now, if that's better, what's the alternative? You know, if, if you could choose, according to Jesus, if you could choose, if you had a choice in the matter, Jesus thinks you would choose drowning with a millstone, a giant Millstone tied around your neck. You see how serious Jesus takes the conduct of His disciples? He does not want us to stray from the narrow path. He doesn't want us to stray. Now in verses eight and nine, Jesus is going to talk about being thrown into the eternal fire or thrown into the hell of fire. And if that's the result of not fighting our own sin, as we're going to see in a minute, it will likely also be the result for the one who leads his people astray. Now, does this mean that causing one of these to sin is the unforgivable sin? And when it's committed, there's no more hope? And of course, I think we have to say no to that. Look at verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now it's inevitable that we will sin against one another from time to time, and there is forgiveness of sin even when one of us leads another one away from God's good path. And the Lord will forgive us, and we must forgive one another, but we must not for that reason despise what our Lord says here. It would be better to die a horrible death today than to lead one of Jesus' disciples into sin tomorrow and face the eternal consequences of that, even if in the end you end up in heaven. And so this is quite a teaching. This is quite a thing that our Lord has put before us. Verse seven continues, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Temptations to sin and temptations and temptation in that verse, the three times are all again that word scandal on the same word that we saw from verse six that refers to a trap or being tempted to get off of the path or being offended by the whole thing scandal on and it's a woe is pronounced it's a woe of judgment or a woe of sorrow or a woe of pain woe to the world for these things these temptations to disobedience you know now they seem like no big no big deal right you, th- you think about how does the world think about temptation how does even the average christian at times think about temptation no big deal we all do it not 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 so bad why are you so fussy about it? Well, uh, because of a verse like this. You know, now they seem like no big deal. Now, you know, what's a, what's a little step from the path of righteousness? It's only a little step and everyone else steps off the path here as well. So what's the big deal? But Jesus says, whoa. Whoa. Punishment will come. That's the idea. Punishment will come. Woe to you, whoever you are, who would lead one of the Lord's disciples astray. Temptations are going to come, Jesus says. We live in a sinful world, and in a sinful world, we can't avoid it. But the person or the people who are the instruments of this sort of thing, they will be punished. Woe to them. Woe to the one who is a stumbling block and leads a believer off the path and into sin. Stumbling block is another way that this word scandalon is often translated. And so we see then from all this the importance of our influence on one another. These are verses that a man must weigh very carefully if he's going to go into ministry. If he's going to be involved in ministry, these verses should be carefully weighed if you would have other believers look to you as an example of a follower of Christ. See, if you see yourself as a trailblazer in the kingdom of Christ, or if you allow others to see you that way, you would be better, or you had better be sure that you are leading people down the right path, lest you lead others straight to hell, and you yourself into the most severe punishment imaginable. See, James warned that teachers will be judged with greater judgment or greater strictness. That's James 3 and verse 1. And all of this is one of the reasons that I believe that a man who would pursue ministry should get the best training possible. Because we're usually unaware of all of the things that we are ignorant of, and we might lead people astray without even knowing what's going on. See, I think from this verse, we could say that there's many ministers who would be better off dying than continuing in the ministry. And I don't think that's too harsh. There'd be many ministers who would be better off dying than continuing in their ministry. Because if you would teach others that you had better first be taught yourself, lest you do more damage than good and bring this judgment upon yourself and others. Brothers and sisters, I take this very seriously, and a text like this makes me re-examine my calling to the ministry. You see, I believe Jesus when he says to me, it would be better for you, Mike, to have a millstone fastened around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. But I also believe what we saw in verse 5. So that if we don't do what I'm called to do, if I don't serve the Lord in the way that I'm gifted to serve him, and I don't do for one such child, whatever I don't do for them, I don't do it for the Lord. And that would be not to influence people for his glory, and so to be guilty of leading little ones astray by not doing my duty. And so you see that either way we do this, we just have to make sure that we're walking down the right path. And so in my study this week, I recommitted myself to receiving you as I would receive Jesus Christ himself and to ensure, and Lord, I, I ask you to help me to do it, that, that I would lead you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And I think that you also should commit and do the same and commit yourself to receiving other disciples as you would Christ and ensuring that you don't lead them astray in anything. And what that means is that we're going to need to deal with our own sin. See, in order to keep from leading another believer astray, I'm going to need to guard myself from going astray. Do you see that? See, if I want to help you and protect you and keep you on the narrow way so that you stay on the good path, then I need to make sure that I'm walking that narrow path myself. And so we've seen so far that that when we receive another one in Jesus' name, we receive the Lord himself. And that reception, if we kind of contrast these kind of parallel sections, verse 5 and verse 6 and 7, we see that, that to receive one such little one is to receive Christ. But conversely, if I lead one such little one into sin, that's tantamount to rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the one sense, there's this blessing of receiving the Lord, but on the, the other sense, there's this, this danger of offending the Lord and leading one of his little ones into sin. And all of that leads to the necessity of watching ourself. The necessity of watching ourself. Verse 8 and 9, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And so we go from causing others to stumble or to sin to watching ourselves Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy four sixteen, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that's the idea here. We watch ourselves lest we lead others astray. We watch ourselves for ourselves, but we also watch ourselves for others because our example in the lives of others is eternally important. Now, what we see in our text, we've seen before in regard to the specific sin of lust. And to see that, I want you just to turn back to Matthew 5. Look at verses 27 to 30. Matthew five twenty-seven. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. When we looked at that section, we saw that Jesus is using hyperbolic language there or exaggerated language, picturesque language to show us how serious we are to to be in our fight against sin. Now, obviously, tearing out one's eye is not going to deal with the sin of lust, but if it could, then even that wouldn't be too drastic, See Jesus knows very well that sin is from the heart. Matthew 15:19 Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false, false witness, slander. But Jesus applies this principle of taking drastic action in our war against sin and he moves it from the specific sin of lust in chapter 5 to any sin in chapter 18. Now where it says in our text causes you to sin in verse 8 and causes you to sin in verse 9, again, that's scandalizo. The same word that we saw in verse 6 and that we looked at uh, three times as a noun in verse 7. And so we must take drastic action in our own lives to ensure that no one leads us away from following Jesus Christ. Now think about this. How precious is one of your eyes? Or how valuable is your right hand or or your strong hand for those of us who are left-handed? How valuable is that hand? You know, sometimes we view our sins as precious things. And we buy into the lie and we we think of them as good and helpful and, and pleasurable. But again, it's a lie. It's a trap. These sinful actions or thoughts that, that can become dear to us as a child or even as J.C. Ryle once said, as a right hand or as a foot or an eye, they can be seen or they should be seen for what they are and forsaken. And the idea here is that anything that would draw us away from Christ should be seen as an offense, it should be seen as an enemy, it should be seen as a bait that would catch us and destroy us. And perhaps you have something in mind right now. Something or, or someone in your life that tempts you to sin or that, that keeps you from righteousness, which is against sin. And whatever that thing is, our Lord tells us here, cut it off and throw it away. Cut it off and throw it away. Jesus gives us another better scenario in verse eight it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Or again in verse 9, it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Well, how do we interpret this? What does this mean? Does this mean that if you don't fight your sin, you're going to go to hell? That if you don't take radical measures to throw off causes to sin, you will be thrown in hell. Is that the teaching? I think it's very much like what we saw in verse 6. That if you had the choice, it would be better to be drowned than cause a disciple to sin. But that's, again, that's not your choice. And it would be wrong to choose that way. Your choice is in in verse 6 is not to cause someone else to sin. And if you choose otherwise, woe to you. And the same sort of thing here. Your choice here is to fight your sin or not to fight your sin. And it's better if you choose to fight it. To lose even some very precious, some very beneficial things in your life. Even if you had to lose something of great value because because you choose not to fight your sin. It's, it's very likely that if you choose that choice, that you will end up in hell. It's better if you choose to fight against your sin, to lose even some very precious beneficial things, rather than choose not to fight your sin, where you will very likely end up in hell. Now let me kind of flesh this out for a minute here as we think about this. What the Lord is teaching here in verse, in chapter 18 is very much like what we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's, it's from the other side. And let, let me explain what I'm talking about here. Remember, You'll remember very well, I think, Matthew 5.20, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or in Matthew 7.21, where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but who will enter the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven now we asked at that time what is the will of jesus's father in heaven and it was for jesus's disciples to follow jesus as he lays out in the sermon on the mount and so there was this warning that if we didn't do the will of the father we wouldn't enter the kingdom of heaven or again, in the very conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty four. everyone then who hears these words of mine, and again, those words are the words from the sermon, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Who built his house on the stand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And you remember from that time that we looked at that, that the idea of the, the rains and the floods coming, speaking about the judgment of God. And at the end, if, if you don't hear these words of Jesus' and put them into practice, then you're like this foolish man and you're in danger of the judgment of God. And you're like one of those who says, Lord, Lord, but doesn't do the will of the Father in heaven. And your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we saw that the true believer then is the one who lives according to the words of Jesus Christ. And we were able to harmonize this teaching at that time with the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith by recognizing that the grace of God in salvation changes our lives so that we follow Jesus Christ. And we're given new hearts and we're given new wills and new desires and the old things have passed away and behold, all things are new. And the faith that saves, saves. And the faith that justifies also sanctifies because justifying faith unites us to Jesus Christ and Christ transforms us. Or in the words of First John, no one who is born of God keeps on sinning. And so the saved person is the transformed person and they are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another and they're going to begin a lifelong battle against their sin when they're born again. And if they don't do that, then their righteousness will not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and they won't do the will of the Father in heaven And they'll be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and they will never enter the kingdom of God. See, the Sermon on the Mount says that this righteousness, without this righteousness, you will never enter heaven. Whereas Matthew 18 sermon says that if you don't fight against your sin, you will go to hell. And so it's the same thing from the opposite side. And so we've seen then, kind of working our way backwards, we've seen the necessity of watching ourselves. In verses 8 and 9, we need to fight against our own sin. We need to continue to strive to to walk down the narrow path that began when we were born again and entered in at the narrow gate. And there's this necessity of watching ourselves because if we are a bad example on others, we are in danger of committing the sin that Jesus warned against. And we call that the warning against mistreating a little one and causing them to sin or leading them astray from right practice or belief. And then on the more positive side, we saw the blessing of receiving a little one in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, again, our influence matters. Our example in this life matters. It matters to Jesus, and it should matter to us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, admonishment that you've given us this morning. We thank you for the, the good word that when we receive another disciple, even the lowest of the low that we receive you. We thank you that we can serve you as we serve one another. But Father, we we tremble when we think about leading another one astray. And I think each and every one of us would say in this moment, Lord, help us. Help us to lead your your little ones in, in the way that you would have them go. And we pray for ourselves that you would help us to walk this way, to fight against our sin, to even in the first place, to see our sin so that we can recognize it for what it is and turn and repent. And we pray this, Father, for your glory and, and even for our own eternal sakes. Father, we pray for any here again who aren't born again, that you would bring them to Jesus Christ and save them by faith and transform their lives that they might follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.